We live in a culture that deeply values personal autonomy. We like to be in charge of ourselves, and we do not like to submit to others. And here in the Pacific Northwest, I think the idea of personal autonomy perhaps runs even deeper than it does in other parts of the U.S. I think it's a cultural legacy of the Oregon Trail. The founders of our region were self-reliant, independent pioneers who took care of themselves. And that attitude seems to have worked its way into the DNA of our region. And and as a result, submission is not something that we enjoy. It's not something that we even talk about much. Let me give you an example. Suppose I come home from work one day and my wife Julie says, so how did things go? And you would never, never hear me respond like this. It was a wonderful day of submission. On the way to work, I ran a stop sign, and I gladly submitted to the police officer as he wrote up my citation. And then I got to the office, and I'd carved out time to work on my sermon, but God had other plans, and someone in great need showed up at the church office. So I joyfully submitted to God's agenda, and I dealt with that person, and now I'm behind on my plans. Oh, submission is so wonderful. I could go on, but you get the point. It would would be really weird for me to talk that way because we don't pursue nor do we celebrate submission. And yet, submission permeates the life of faith. As we read the Bible, submission is everywhere. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we're asked to submit to Jesus as our king. As brothers and sisters within the family of God, we're asked to submit to each other. As members of a local congregation, we're asked to submit to the elders. And that's, that's just for starters. There are countless ways you and I are asked to submit, and sometimes submission comes easy to us, and sometimes it doesn't. And I've also learned that in certain areas of life, submission grows easier over time. I learned years ago the joy of giving financially to the church, but it wasn't easy at first. Initially, I resisted submitting my finances to God. But over time, it became embedded in my lifestyle. And now financial giving for me is the most natural thing in the world. And the reality is that all of us, at some points in our lives, are going to struggle with submission. And that's because it's not easy for us to let go of our preferences and do what God asks. And the way forward, regardless of the issue we're struggling with, the way forward is to pray. We need to become willing to pray with submission because that is how we can align our will with the will of God. And the benefit is this, the more we are willing to do what God asks, the more we will experience God's peace in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls. So what does a prayer of submission look like? Well, Jesus offers us a powerful example. He shows us how to pray with submission when he approaches God in prayer and asks if there is any way he can avoid the cross. And through his prayer, 
and through the circumstances that surround his prayer, Jesus shows us how to submit to God. And we're going to see that submitting to God is transforming. It changes us and it equips us to handle whatever God might ask us to do. So we're going to take a look at this spirit-inspired prayer of Jesus that's recorded in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. So please join me as we now listen to the word of God. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. These events take place on the last night of Jesus' life, shortly after he finished his Passover dinner. And during that meal, he told his disciples that his blood was going to be shed and his body was going to be broken and that this was going to be done for the sins of mankind. So Jesus knows what's coming. He also knows that if he goes to the cross, he's going to experience emotional trauma, physical agony, and spiritual devastation as all of the sins of all human history are laid on him. Is it any wonder that he doesn't want to do that? In this moment, he is struggling to submit to God's will. And he knows that the solution is to pray. He desperately wants to talk things over with his heavenly Father. And he also does not want to be alone as he wrestles with this issue. So he takes the disciples and heads off to pray in a garden called Gethsemane. And as they reach the garden, Jesus leaves most of the men by the gate. And then he takes Peter and James and John with him deeper into the garden. And what he's showing us is that as he prepares to pray, he wants his closest friends to be nearby and also to be praying. Because there is strength and there's comfort 
when we pray in community. So much more than when we pray alone. And we need the prayer support of others when we're experiencing emotional agony. And Jesus is in intense emotional pain as we see here in verse 34. And notice that he doesn't pretend things are okay. He doesn't try to posture. He doesn't try to act super spiritual, which is a tactic we sometimes adopt. I'm impressed by the fact that Jesus is willing to be vulnerable with his friends, which is an act of humble submission. He lets them know what he's feeling because he wants their support. He wants their prayers. And so he tells these friends, keep watch. And then he moves a few paces away and he begins to pray. And those two words, keep watch, are laden with meaning because faithful Jews always stayed up late on Passover night to keep watch. They would keep watch to symbolize their hope that the Messiah would come perhaps even that very night. They would talk together about the redemption they would experience when the Messiah came. And they would spend time in prayer. So when Jesus says, keep watch, he's inviting them to do what they always do on Passover night. But now with a new emphasis. They should watch him. They should listen as he prays. And they should let that shape their own time of prayer. Jesus' invitation to his friends to watch and pray emphasizes the importance of praying in community, that there is power when we pray with and for other believers, that there's power when we have other believers gathered around us as we pray. And yet, far too often, we follow a different pattern. As Americans, we're products of such an individualized culture that our tendency is to isolate ourselves. And I see, see this happen time after time that when a follower of Jesus is struggling, so often they step away from God, they step away from the family God, and they try and struggle on alone. And I think the example of Jesus tells you and tells me that when we're hurting, when we're struggling, we need to push against our cultural instincts and we need to reach out to God and we need to reach out to other believers. We need to be honest with them about the issues we face and we can surround ourselves with the community of faith. And we need to recognize that it is an act of humble submission to invite people into our circumstances and ask them to pray with us and to pray for us. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And it is so important. And I know from personal experience that we miss something when we don't take advantage of the opportunity to pray in community. <sighs> a year and a half ago, my nephew committed suicide. And when that happened, I told the elders of our church, and I told the staff, but I didn't tell you. And that was a mistake. I should have told you. But I kept that information back out of this misplaced sense of privacy and independence. And in retrospect, my family and I really could have used your prayers during that time. And I regret that we missed out on the power 
of praying in community and inviting the community of, uh, to, of faith to pray with us and for us. And what saddens me is not just what I did, but what saddens me here is what the disciples do because they do the same thing. They miss out on the blessing that Jesus wants to give them in this time when he needs his friends the, the most. They let him down. And if we leap ahead just a bit in the story, we find that James, or excuse me, that Jesus spends some time in prayer and then he walks over to check on what his friends are doing and he finds that they have failed. Peter, James, and John are not keeping watch. They are not praying. They are sleeping, as we see in verses 37 and 38. And what we read here is heartbreaking. Jesus has invited them humbly to watch and pray with him, and they don't. And it's not just about Jesus. By his comments, we know that he wanted them to pray not just for him, but also for themselves. They need to pray so that they'll have the strength, emotionally and spiritually, to endure the horrific events of the next few days. Because they choose to sleep rather than to pray. They miss out on the richness of praying in community. And so Jesus lovingly rebukes Peter for not staying awake for an hour to pray. And by the way, that comment from Jesus lets us know that his time of prayer was not brief. I mean, think about that. He spent one whole hour in prayer as he poured out his heart to God. When's the last time you and I prayed for an hour? Jesus was willing to invest significant time as he struggled to submit his own will to the will of the Heavenly Father. And in fact, he he prayed for a lot longer than one hour as we see in additional parts of this passage, verses 35, 36, 39, and 41. So we see that Jesus prays, he takes a break, he prays a second time, takes a break, and prays a third time. We know that his first round of prayer lasted for an hour, so he might have spent two or three hours or perhaps even more in prayer. And by his actions, we're reminded that when we're struggling to submit to the will of God, we should not rush And we have to admit that our tendency is to be selfish and stubborn and prideful. And we don't like to submit. So if we rush through prayer, we're far less likely to align our will with the will of God. And here's something that occurs to me as I think about this. Jesus is not prideful and selfish and stubborn. And he takes a huge amount of time to be able to accept God's plan for his life in this moment. And if Jesus needs that kind of time with the Father, then what must my need be? And what must your need be? When we understand how long Jesus actually prayed there in Gethsemane, then we realize that the words recorded here in verse 36 capture just a very small part of his prayer. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I think this probably is the part of the prayer that the disciples heard before they fell asleep. 
And as they listen to Jesus, what they hear is a prayer of heartache, a prayer where a loving son is crying out to his Abba, his Papa. It's a prayer that expresses this battle that's taking place within Jesus, a battle between his very human desire to avoid the agony and shame of the cross and his desire as the Son of God to be faithful and obedient to the Father. It's a prayer where he expresses and acknowledges that God does have the power to change things. Yet he never demands that God change things. It's a prayer where Jesus expresses a willingness to submit to God, even if nothing does change. And Jesus' submission to God here is not just verbal, it's also physical. When we compare the accounts of this story recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it becomes apparent that as Jesus steps away from Peter, James, and John to pray, he drops to his knees. And his emotions are running so high, there's so much agony here that sweat is pouring off of him and and they're falling on the ground in huge drops. And then Jesus ultimately winds up down on his face in a posture of total humility as he humbly asks God if there might be another way. Could there perhaps, Father, be a plan B? Because from where he stands at that moment, plan A looks pretty terrifying. And as Jesus frames this request for a plan B, he does so in a highly symbolic way by asking that the cup be taken away from him. And he uses that term cup deliberately because it points back to the Passover meal where he instituted the memorial of communion. And he told his followers that the cup of communion was his blood. His blood that would be poured out on the cross to rescue people from their sins. Now that's a great gift to give to the world, but at this moment, the price of that gift seems too high. It's no wonder Jesus tells the Father that he'd rather not go through with it. And yet Jesus knows that the way of the Father always is best. Even if the way God asks us to travel is filled with pain. And sometimes that is the plan of God. Throughout history, faithful believers sometimes are asked by God to submit to pain and heartache and sorrow and sometimes even death. And this is a reality about the life of faith that is so hard to embrace. And yet it happens. In the book of Acts, we read about Stephen who is stoned to death simply for saying, I choose to follow Jesus. We read about James, the brother of John, who's executed for his faith. And many believers around the world today are being harassed and persecuted and tortured and even killed. Sometimes that is the plan of God. And we don't have to be a martyr to experience the pain of life, a terminal illness, job loss that leads to great financial hardship the death of a loved one in a tragic accident. These kinds of situations and so many more are understandably hard to accept. 
And the fact is, living by faith is not easy. So I'm thankful that Jesus shows us how to pray when we're struggling to embrace the will of God. And we see in this prayer that Jesus is honest with the Father, and yet he realizes that the most important outcome of this time of prayer is for him to align his mind, his heart, his emotions, and his will with the Father's plan. And so he expresses his wish and also that he will accept the Father's will. What a great example of submission. And it's clear that this is not something Jesus could have accomplished by reason alone. He's able to submit to God because he prays to God and he shows us that persistent, diligent prayer is what opens our heart to God and leads to change. And sometimes when we pray long and hard, things change. And sometimes, in fact, maybe more often, when we pray long and hard, what changes is not our circumstances, but what changes is us. And that's what happens to Jesus. He does not get his wish for God's plan B. He submits to plan A. And I love the way that this is described for us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7. The author of Hebrews writes, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So, so, As Jesus prays about his impending death, he's crying out to God. He's shedding tears. And he's not quiet about it. And that's why the nearby disciples are able to hear him, at least when they're awake. And as he cries out to God from the depths of his soul, we're told that his prayer is heard. He's heard because of his reverent submission Now, we know from the words of the prayer that Jesus offered that he did submit to the Father, but but how can he be heard? How can the author of Hebrews say that Jesus was heard when he didn't get what he asked for? I think we learn that from the final part of the passage in Mark. In verses 41 and 42, we see that a dramatic change has taken place in Jesus. His attitude now, compared to when he entered the garden, has been transformed. You see, when Jesus first arrives in the garden to pray, he's filled with emotional agony, and his soul is sorrowful and downcast. But after praying three separate times, for a couple of hours or more, he's ready to face the cross with courage. His circumstances haven't changed. He's been changed. He's been strengthened because he's chosen to submit to the will of the Father. That's how Jesus was heard. When Jesus was willing to submit, then God prepared him for what would come next. And this tells us that there is great spiritual power that is placed into our lives when we make the choice to submit to our great God. And ultimately, there is great peace in our soul when we do what God asks us to do. 
even if what he asks us to do is full of pain and perhaps even death. Andrew Murray was a pastor, a teacher, an author. And here's what he had to say about submission. The Holy Spirit teaches me to yield my will entirely to the will of the Heavenly Father. The Spirit shows me how union with God's will is union with God Himself. The Spirit shows me how complete surrender to God's will is the Father's claim, the Son's example, and the true blessedness of the soul. That's what Jesus experienced. He prayed. He submitted. He was heard. So he was blessed in his soul. Before he prayed, all he could say is, Oh, my soul is so downcast. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And after he prayed, he was able to say, Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. What a transformation. What a difference the prayer of submission makes. There is great spiritual power in choosing to submit to our great God. Now, thankfully, none of us will ever face the same situation that Jesus did. Yet what he models here in this moment is something that we can put into practice in any number of situations where we might be struggling to submit to the will of God. And so when you and I find that our desires might be in conflict with what God wants, then we need to pray in community. We need to make that invitation that Jesus did. Inviting others to pray with us and for us can help clear away the fog of confusion if we can't discern the will of God. And if we know what God wants us to do and we're struggling stubbornly to submit, the prayers of the community can help us to let go of that and embrace God's plan. And in addition, like Jesus, we should devote some time to pray. It might not be all at once on a single night like it was with Jesus. It it might take place over days or even months. But if there is an issue where our will is at odds with the will of God, then we should keep at it in prayer until it's resolved. We can't rush through a hasty prayer and expect that much will change. And we can struggle with the will of God in all kinds of areas of life. Sometimes it might be a struggle with a sinful behavior. We might be engaged in a practice that we know is displeasing to God. We know we should stop, but we don't. So why don't we follow the biblical advice to confess our sins to one another? We can invite some people to pray with us and pray for us. And together we can say, God, help me to submit to what you want. And when we can lay aside harmful practices, that's when we will be content in our soul and we can experience the best that God has for us. And sometimes it might be that our struggle with God's will involves a dramatic or perhaps even radical change in lifestyle. And in that regard, I think of my friend James. He had a job in downtown Los Angeles, and he had a nice, pleasant, middle-class life out in the suburbs. And during college, James became good friends with Charles. They became really good friends. James is white. Charles is black. 
And James went into business and Charles went into the ministry and he began serving in an inner city church in downtown Los Angeles. And their friendship continued. It was a very strong bond. And one day, James called, or excuse me, uh, Charles called James and said, I really need somebody here in the church I can rely on. I need somebody that I know will have my back. Will you move down here and serve with me in this church? Now, he wasn't asking James to enter the ministry, stick with your job, but just live here in the neighborhood, be a volunteer, get engaged in the life of the church, and help us to build the kingdom of God. And it wasn't an easy decision. James and his family would be, as white people, an ethnic minority living in a neighborhood that was largely black and Hispanic. So he and his wife spent a lot of time wrestling with God in prayer. Was that the right decision for them and for their children? And ultimately, they said yes, and they made that move. Was life in the city easy? No. But they were content, and their lives were spiritually fruitful. It made a huge impact for God's kingdom as they served alongside their friend in that inner city church. Those are just a couple of examples, but I wonder what might God be nudging you to do? Are you listening to that small, still voice of the Holy Spirit? Is there some area of your life where you know that you're living your life this way, but God really wants you to live it this way? You know that your will and God's will are at odds. In any of those situations, we can learn great lessons from the example of Jesus. And I hope that we will learn how to pray this kind of prayer. To offer prayers of submission so that we can do what God wants and experience contentment in our souls. Because that is a great gift that God wants to give to His children. And when we are where God wants, doing what God wants, Life may not always be easy, but we always will be content.